So you can read through the book of Ruth this week, and that'll help prepare our hearts for Sunday evenings. If you want to read the book of 1 Thessalonians, or actually next week it'll be 2 Thessalonians, uh, you can read some of those chapters and kind of prepare your heart and mind before we ever enter the service, and God may speak to you before we ever get here. So that's where we're headed <clears throat> for the next few weeks. And you say, well, why Ruth and why now? We're kind of going to use this to carry our Sunday evenings into, <clears throat> if you add it up, uh, kids know that six weeks from now we'll be headed into Christmas week. Uh, adults may not realize that it's only that far away, but that'll carry us right up into our Christmas time. So well, what does Ruth have to do with Christmas or the coming of Christ, and we're going to look at that, that uh, the book of Ruth is based or it starts out of Bethlehem, which is where Jesus had his start, uh, but the book of Ruth also gives us an insight to kind of when Jesus had his start, and this book has direct implications with where Jesus or God is going to choose to bring Jesus from physically into this earth, and so we're going to talk about some of those things, not just from a uh, scholastic point of view, but also spiritually. What is the, how does the book of Ruth push us to look toward a coming Savior? And that's really what we're going to be emphasizing these few weeks is uh, the Redeemer that Ruth had to look to, we look to now in Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're going to be uh, looking at some of those things. I'd like to read just chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 for this evening. Uh, it's really just an introduction tonight into the book of Ruth. So I'd like to read those verses, then take a few minutes and, and just gather some background information about, about the book of Ruth. Hopefully it's a book you're familiar with, but if not, uh, we'd like to get some background to that because it will weigh heavy on how we look at uh, the book of Ruth. It'll kind of be the lenses by which we see what God is trying to teach us from this particular uh, portion of Scripture. So if you would, Look at verse number one with me this evening, Ruth, chapter number one, verse number one. It's going to give us right away a, a, a timing of where this book is placed. It's actually going to be placed in or during the book of Judges. So the book of Judges ends probably on your left side of the page or maybe the page before, and the book of Ruth starts on the very next page. The book of Ruth actually happens within the book of Judges. It's sort of a, a little uh, side note. Now, one of my knocks is that I have, a couple people on staff here tease me about this, is that I have never seen any of the Star Wars movies, but I hear that they work this way too. Like, you kind of can have a story and then they go over here and make another one of another story kind of that happened within the story and that's kind of the way that this works. Ruth is from within the book of Judges, okay? So let's look at verse number one. <clears throat> it says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. A certain man of Bethlehem Judah, that is the Bethlehem of which Jesus was born, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came unto the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. <clears throat> I keep wanting to read that Oprah, but it is not. It is Orpah, and the name of the other was and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Kilion died also, both of them. 
And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Let's ask God to help teach us from this passage this evening. Lord, we pray that as we study this book, that we would realize that it is your word to your people even today. That is not just some distant story uh, that we should uh, take advice from, but it is your living and breathing word that can change and move us. And so we ask you that you would do that this evening. We are a wanting and needy people, uh, not just from our own circumstance with the loss of our pastor, but uh, from our daily lives, uh, the things that change our plans each day. And we need to realize that it is under your sovereign, providential hand of guidance and that you are in control. And so we ask that you would teach us these things tonight and for the next few weeks. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen. If you'd like to jot a few things down, I'll give you a little bit of background before we leap all the way into uh, verses 1 through 5 this evening. But the book of Ruth is an interesting book. In fact, if you read behind several astute scholars, as they call themselves, ironically, uh, they claim, several different people have claimed that the book is actually, it is, they say it's part of the Bible, but they say it's ideological fiction. They say it's a story, kind of a parable from within the judges, and, and it, it's not something that really happened, and uh, it, that really doesn't hold water. That argument doesn't really hold water. It really doesn't work, and there's several reasons why we believe this is a true story, not just a parable from God's Word, but uh, number one, it, it is set contextually in a real place at a real time, and we will find later it is with real people. Uh, you don't often tell a parable that involves all real things, but is a fake story. And so uh, that is one proof. It has a genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth. It says, and Ruth and Boaz begat this one, and they begat this one, and they had this son, and they had this son. That's also not common for a book of fiction uh, to include a genealogy of all real people. Uh, that's not normal either. And so it's another proof that this is a real story that happened within God's Word. It also, there are no incredible miracles or uh, massive acts of God's work that would give us any need to include it. It's, some people say, well, the book of Jonah is included for this reason or that reason, or they may argue. But there, there's, there's no argument for the book of Ruth saying, well, it's a parable and it's told because it's so outlandish. It is a normal story about normal people going through normal struggles in a real place at a real time. And Matthew, even, if you read the book of Matthew, and this is kind of where we're going to end in six weeks, I'll give you a little bit of a head start on it, but the book of Matthew includes Ruth in his genealogy in the line of Christ. And so it would be unusual. There's nowhere else from the Bible he could pick this name. The, book, the, the name of Ruth and the story of Ruth is in no other book in the Old Testament. And so uh, Matthew kind of affirms that, that for us that this is a real credible story. This... Um, story. He didn't have to do that that way, but he pulls it from a portion of God's Word. Now, Ruth, in the book, the name is from one of the three prominent characters of the book. We have mainly Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, and then there's some side characters that are mentioned here and there. Uh, Ruth herself was not Hebrew. Uh, she was not an Israelite. We're going to see that in a few moments and for the next few weeks, and that is going to be a big deal by the time that we finish this book, and we're going to see God's mercy in that, and we're going to see a comparison to our own lives, that God took us from outside of His family or His line, the people of Israel, and that mercifully He extended His grace 
to Ruth, but he also extends his grace to us. And then uh, it was written in 1100 B.C., so over a thousand years before Christ came to this earth a long, long time ago. That's the estimate. But let's think about this. Why is it written? Why is this book important to us? Why should we look at it for the next few weeks? What impact could it have on our lives? And uh, if you want to jot a couple of these down, number one, the, the big theme of the book, if you want to look at it this way, is God's providential plan, that God is completely in control of all things at all times and in all ways. It teaches God's unquestioned providence and control in the lives of His people. And I think that at this time, in this moment, in our church and in our lives as families, that, that is a lesson that we could use a reminder of, that God's unquestioned providence is in control at all times in our lives. It teaches that God is not absent even when He does not seem present. Let me repeat that for you. That it teaches that God is not absent even when He does not seem to be present. And that will be a comforting lesson that we learn throughout this book as well. It teaches that His plans will go forward and unfold even when we can't see them unfolding. So He is present even when He seems to be absent. And His will and His plans are unfolding even when we don't see them unfolding. And it teaches finally that He takes His people from emptiness to fullness, often in a surprising and unpredictable way. A second kind of theme or, or mindset, there's a word, if you want to take the common word or the, the key word of the book, there's a word in the Hebrew, it's, it's translated a lot of different ways in Ruth itself, it's used as several words, but there's a word that is called, it's, the, the word itself is hesed, it's a word that's used all throughout, you see it translated in Ruth, it's translated as the word kindness, you see it as kind of the word kind of loyalty or, or faithfulness. But the word itself was a very popular word without Hebrew, in, in Hebrew culture. It talked or spoke of God's providential treatment of His people. If you want to really dumb it down, the word hesed or the, the, the things that it implicated, it was how God dealt with His people and how His people dealt with His people. In other words, it, it teaches us that God deals with His people in a way unlike any other relationship we know of in this world. And it also teaches that within God's people and within God's family, that we should treat each other in a way that is unlike any other relationship that this world knows. Christians should treat Christians differently. Children of God should treat children of God in a way unlike anyone else can treat them. A display of kindness demanding nothing in return. So those are the two big themes throughout this book, that God is in control, He has complete sovereign providence over all things, and that God treats His people kindly, and that He does it gently, and that He does it best. So it's important for us for these reasons, and because of this time, and, and even as we get closer to Christmas, what Christmas time kind of brings in the minds of many of us. And some of us have great memories of Christmas, and others that I have met may not have 
fond memories of Christmas. It may bring, uh, or, or holidays, it may bring memories of tragedy, or it may bring memories of broken relationships. It may bring uh, memories of hardship or, or, or different things and difficult times. And so I think at this time and sort of this point of the year and where we are in our lives as a church, that this can help soothe our souls when we realize that God is in control, even when things are mentally difficult, emotionally difficult, physically difficult. Holidays are not all cheer for everyone in this world, and we should be sensitive to that as a group of people, because it gives us an opportunity to minister in a way that we may not through other parts of the year. You don't have to live long in this world to find the off-balancing nature, and here's kind of the title of tonight's sermon, the off-balancing nature of unexpected unwanted circumstances. I want you to think about that. That's kind of the theme that we're going to take for just tonight's introductory lesson through chapter one, is that sometimes we are faced with unwanted, unsolicited, unexpected circumstances. And it's impossible to be fully prepared for all of these circumstances. You think about where this book is set in the book of Judges. They were, Israel was facing a time of political and social and cultural chaos. Not that we would know anything about any of those. They were also facing a physical famine. They were facing some different things. It's mentioned right away that there was also a famine in the land that could have come from a lot of different ways and a lot of different places and a lot of different things. But it could be that it was simply from the sovereign hand of God, a work of God, to test and try and causes people to rely and lean on Him and His name. The time was a time of judges, and the judges were supposed to, okay? Here's what the judges were supposed to do. If you want a job description for the judges, now how would you like to do that one day? And God calls you, He calls uh, you know, Gideon and Samson. Different. I would like for you to be a judge. Okay, God, what is the job description for a judge? Well, it's kind of something that God had just kind of created, but if you want to simplify it and say it this way, the judges were to lead God's people towards God's rule and do it in God's way. Okay, let me say it again. They were to take God's people and not lead and rule over them themselves. They were supposed to take God's people and point them towards God's rule and to let them follow God's rule and lead them in God's way. But ironically and devastatingly, that really did not happen very often in the book of Judges, if you've ever read those chapters, you know that that's not the case. In fact, you may not even have to turn your Bible over. Look at the last verse of the book of Judges, if you would. The last book, verse of the book of Judges, it's chapter 21, verse number 25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Okay, so they haven't gotten kings yet. Okay, so you kind of know where Ruth is going. There's no monarch. There's no one to help save the nation of Israel. It's kind of every man for himself and the tribes living within the tribes and all these different things. But notice it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Doesn't that sound like a pleasant place to live? Every man doing what was right in his own eyes. In fact, if we, we won't for time's sake, in fact, if you were to go back and read verses 16 through verse 25, you'll see that the tribe of Benjamin, who somehow had no real like, women in the tribe of Benjamin, the men from the tribe of Benjamin like, kind of went off and, and they captured a group of women and kind of forced them to be their wives so that they can continue having a tribe 
for themselves. It's, it's, you can just kind of see it's a dark, terrible, bitter time of Israel's history, if you want to look at it that way. This was not a, a, a time of kumbaya. This was not an easy time for anyone, socially, politically, economically. And now, this famine on top of it. So this horrible, dark, confusing chaos is the background from which the book of Ruth is written. So on top of the verses we read, where she loses her husband and she loses both sons, we already know that. She loses her husband, she loses two sons. She's had to move away from her home. She's living in a famine and it's an incredibly terrible time in the nation of Israel. And from that is born the story of Ruth and the mercy that God had on these people's lives. So the impact of this famine, you think about there was no grocery store. There was no place to just pick things up. It couldn't be shipped in. There was no Amazon Prime, or if you live in the Richmond area, Amazon Prime now, and getting it in two hours is a delight, right? And just because you had money did not mean that you had food. In America, in our culture today, we think if you have money, then you can have food. And some people grow their own food and do different things like that. But our association is as long as you have money, you'll have food. Well, in this case, it did not matter what Elimelech had. It did not matter how much money he had. It did not matter the type of home he lived in. It did not matter his status. He could not get what he felt like he needed. He couldn't buy it. He couldn't purchase it. He couldn't win it. He couldn't capture it. It just wasn't there. And when Elimelech is faced with this trouble and with this trial, and if you think about it, if you jot it down, the word Bethlehem, where he lived, means house of bread. But ironically... There was no bread in his house. And so he is presented with this problem, a logical problem. And if you put yourself in the place of Elimelech, dads and husbands in the room where we feel the responsibility to provide and to give the things that our families need, put yourself in his place. Okay, go to Kroger tomorrow and nothing is there. All right, the, the beef industry fails. Someone poisons a majority of... Uh, America's produce, something happens and, and disease gets through it and it is destroyed. You don't have time. We're heading into winter. You can't plant and gather your own things. You might be able to hunt and do a little bit. And then all of a sudden, everything in your life has changed. And it doesn't matter if you work overtime tomorrow. And it doesn't matter if you get 60 hours in next week. And it doesn't matter that your Christmas bonus is coming. You still can't get what you need. Have you ever faced a problem in life that it did not matter which way you looked at it, it was completely out of your control? How do we respond to those situations? Elimelech was facing one of those situations in his life. So what does he do? He rationalizes, which seems to be the wise thing. He says, in my place, there is no bread. I can't buy any food and we need food to live. So what are we going to do? So not only does he rationalize, but he makes a plan to provide. He wants to get out and kind of wait out the bad situation. He wants to escape the problem that had been brought into his life. That seems like a logical thing to do, doesn't it? If there was no food in Richmond, but there was food in New York, I'm going to take my family probably to New York. If there's food anywhere else, I'll go anywhere else. But I'm going to go somewhere that there's food. And so that's what Elimelech does. He says, I'm going to get it. But there was a problem with that. There's a problem with Elimelech's rationality in his mind. There's a problem with his plan to provide for his family. It was not what God's plan was. 
You see, God had promised the Israelites when they reached the promised land that if you abide here, you stay here, you drive the enemy out of the land, you claim the land for yourself, I will provide for you here. His promise of his presence was in that land. At that time, that is where God had told them to be. Now, fortunately today, through the uh, the priesthood of every believer, the fact that we have Christ living in our lives. We don't have to be in a certain place to have the presence of God in our lives, but that is the way that God was working in his life. And he says, you stay here. This is where I provide for you. This is where my presence is. This is where life happens for you. But Elimelech rationalizes, thinks it through logically and says, I'm going to go. Notice, notice what it says in verse, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2 where it says that uh, there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. That word sojourn is a temporary stay. It doesn't say he moved to Moab. He went to wait it out. Some of you, if uh, we have if, uh, different people where Joy's family is from, just outside Detroit, her church has a few of the snowbirds or whatever you call them. And when the winter for uh, you know, Detroit comes in April, you know, <laughs> whenever it comes, uh, they head south for the winter to escape, and then they're going to come back when it's over. That's Elimelech's plan. I'm going to leave where there's no food, go to where there is food, and then I will return. But the problem was, it was not God's plan. We are often like Elimelech, and we just want to escape our problem instead of trust God through it. You try to come up with it. We try to come up with our own solution. We trust our own purpose and we trust our own plan. And when God's plan just doesn't seem right, we try to fix it ourselves. Who wouldn't plan this way like Elimelech did? Elimelech's name incidentally means my God is king. But Elimelech lived as though he was king. He decided to rule in place of God's rule decided to decide in place of God's decision. What has caused us tonight? Think about your own life for a moment in application. What may have caused you or what may have caused I to forget the promises and the position of God? Because ultimately that's what Elimelech did. He rejected or disbelieved what God had promised him. And the place that God said he was going to be, he was willing to leave if it meant getting away from hardship for a little while. What in your life has pulled you away from the promises of God? What in your life, where has God promised us that He will be? If you think about that in your own life, where has God promised you you can learn of Him? Just tell me today. In His Word. What has pulled you away from the place of God's Word that He has said He will be? What has pulled you away from listening to His Spirit where he says he will lead? What has pulled you away from God's church, a thing in which he has promised to lead and to guide us together, to encourage and to build each other up? It is how God has promised to work in our lives. What has pulled you away from his word? What has pushed you away from his spirit? What has kind of pulled you outside of his church to seek other answers to our problems of life? What is it? Like Elimelech, we may say God is our king, but we live differently. And there was a problem with where Elimelech went. You see, Moab was a long-standing enemy of God's people. In fact, the people of Moab, the Moabites as we would call them, 
were actually born out of a relationship between Lot and his daughters. A sinful relationship between Lot and his daughters. It was a sinful people that were enemies of God's people. And they had just come out, Israel had just come out of a time of captivity in which the king of Moab had taken this area of Judah captive. So who does Elimelech turn to when he doesn't think he can trust God? He turns to his enemy. Because he sees what his enemy has. And he sees that his enemy has food, has a place that he can provide, and the very people that God had told Elimelech to avoid and stay away from, the very thing that God had commanded Elimelech to stay out of, Elimelech goes to to solve his problem. See the parallel here? Where do we often go when we don't trust God anymore? Where do we often go when we just want out of our problem? Where do we often go when we want to fix a solution? We want to come up with a solution that is not God's plan. It is not God's way. I want out of this time of trouble, and I'm going to fix it. I want pleasure, so I'm going to go get pleasure. I want provided for, and it doesn't seem like God's doing it the way I want Him to, so I'm going to figure out a different way to do that, some sinful mean or some way that draws me away from His Word and His place and His church. I'm going to be pulled away from this thing. Where do we often turn to when we don't trust God? We turn to the very things that God has commanded us to stay away from. We go to sin. We go to self. We go to the lust of our hearts. We go to the pride of our own lives. And like Elimelech, we run, planning to be there for just a moment. But what happened when he got there? He died. And it shows that our best laid plans hold no promise of success, do they? Have you ever had a plan that you just know, this is it? This is how I'm going to make my fortune. This is, this is how I'm going to get out of debt. This is the way I'm going to pay off the house early. This is the way I'm going to cut the corner at work to success. This is the way I'm going to beat the health system. You know, or whatever idea we may come up. We come up with a perfect plan but even our best plans, we say, this is how I'm going to get my children to be great children, to follow God and to do these things. But it is not of ourselves. It is of God that He works. It is of His power. And our plans have no promise of success. Why? Because His death leaves His family stuck in Moab. Did you notice what it said? Verse number 2, it says at the end, And they came from the country of Moab and continued there, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took the wives of the, Mo, uh, of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. Verse 4, and they dwelled there about ten years. I don't know about you, but in the scope of life, ten years is not a trip. <laughs> ten years is ten years. It's a decade of their lives. And Elimelech's bad decision affects far more than just Elimelech. And when we turn and we run from God, and we don't trust Him, and we form our own plans, it affects not just ourselves, it affects all those that are around us. And Elimelech's poor wife, his two sons, and eventually their two wives are stuck in Moab for 10 years, for whatever reason it may have been, living among God's enemy, living among idol worshipers, living completely out of place. And though we can make plans, 
Only God can do the work. Have you ever tried to go somewhere in Richmond when you have a plan? Better yet, have you ever tried to go somewhere in D.C. when you have a set time? I have a friend of our family that was a friend of my dad's, and he pastored in the Fairfax area for a long time, and he used to say, I, I leave for hospital visits almost an hour and a half before I have to get there, and it's 15 miles away. He said, if I get there, I just go in a coffee shop or something and I study. But most of the time, I'm getting there right before I have to be there uh, because that's just how long it takes. He, in fact, I believe it was him. He said, there's only two things you can be in D.C. You're either early or you're late. You're never on time. And our best laid plans never work the way that we think that they're going to work. There's traffic. There's an accident. There's a detour or we get lost. And it affects far more than just us. Notice that these two sons might have provided Naomi some hope. Think about that. Naomi's husband dies, but it's still okay. She's got these two sons. And they can provide for her here, even in Moab. They can do things. And they can at least continue the family name. So that when we go back to Moab, we can claim the land that was ours, and we can claim our place or back in Bethlehem. We can play, claim the land that was ours. We can claim our place back in our society. We can have our place back amongst our city and our culture. And if, if you know, they're going to get married and they're going to have children, but notice it never says anything about children. And I really don't think that they were there because Ruth and Orpah go to follow them. They don't say anything about any children follow. So for 10 years they lived there, and even that hope fades away. She says, maybe I have the hope of children to carry on the family name, but even that goes away. And then her two sons both die. And all of a sudden, notice if you would in verse number five, Malon and Kilion died also, both of them, after that ten years. And the women, or the woman, was left of her two sons. So where it says that word left, it literally, we don't even have a word that really says that very well in one word. It, it literally means she was desolate, completely abandoned and left alone. There's a lot of emotion in that word where it says she was left. She was by herself. And in her culture and in that day, she did not have an inheritance necessarily to take. She may have had physical things. The land could not necessarily pass straight to her as a woman. Though we may not agree with that and how it worked. That's how it worked in their culture. And in the area that she was in, she wasn't just alone. She was in a dangerous position. She had no one to take care of her, no one to protect her, no one to provide for her. No one in Moab was bound to give her anything. And now Naomi is left in this awful, desolate place. In a way, that's why she's saying, my life is over. I'm going to change my name tomorrow. I, it is a bitter life that I live. And no matter what she seemed to do, it felt dark. You say, well, wow, this has been encouraging. Where do we go with this? I want us to see this evening as we start the book of Ruth that what seemed like the end for her was really God's beginning. And in our lives, what may feel like the end sometimes, what may feel like a dead end, what may feel like a dark place is really God's beginning. It is where God may light the flickering candle that lights up our light with hope. No matter how dark and traumatic, here's what we can learn from Naomi's life. No matter how dark and traumatic, God is at work even in ordinary ways that we cannot see and that we will not understand. We often include God when it fits our plan. 
We devote ourselves to God when it is convenient. Remember how we mentioned that this morning. We give ourselves and commit to God when we're ready. We're quick to take control as great servants of God when our plan works. But we're quick to cast the blame on Him as a bad master when things go sideways. So what should we do in life? When we face a Naomi kind of problem, where hope seems to be taken away, where joy seems to be muffled out, where a cold, wet blanket seems to be placed over the fire of life that was keeping us warm, what should we do? We should do what Elimelech should have done. He should have looked to his, own very, his very own name. My God is king. Even ironically, in the time of the judges, when they had no king, his name was a beacon of hope that God alone is king. He is king over all things, over all people, over all places, over all of our plans, over all of our lives, over all, even over time. God is outside of time itself. He commands and, and gives things and directs things from a whole different perspective than we could ever have. He is not looking at our lives on a line like we are progressing. He is looking at the whole scope of our lives at one time, and He knows what is best, and we should trust our God is King. Our crisis never catches Him off guard, just as Naomi's didn't either. He gives relief on the other side, but more importantly, He gives strength so that we can stand with our backs straight and navigate in the midst of our trial well because our God is King. We trust God as our King. And when we place our trust in Him, we can cease to trust our own way. And that's the most important part of all, is that we don't just trust in Him, we cease to trust our own way that often seems to go sideways so quickly anyway. That we can live free from the fear of tomorrow. We can live free of the need of today. Because God has a plan. He's acting actively on our behalf. And we can trust Him. And this, morning, this evening, as we've read those first five verses, maybe I gave it all away here as we started. But we know ultimately the story of Ruth for the most part. And when we read these five verses as believers and as children of God, we don't have to close our Bible and say, oh, how awful. Though it was terrible in that moment for those circumstances. We can close our Bibles and say, I'm so glad that in spite of this kind of circumstance, that my God is King.